faith in that country. We give you thanks for leaders who are very courageously following through on your Great Commission call, even at tremendous risk to themselves, for the families that are putting themselves in harm's way, for the leaders that are doing so, God, may you strengthen your church in Tunisia. And may you bless seminaries and all teaching ministries that are um, piecing together whatever they can and distributing your truth in whatever way they can in that country. God, and I pray for our church that you would teach us your ways and that you would teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray for our church, but also teach us how to pray for the needs globally beyond our church. We're such a practical uh, people, and that is so good. But sometimes that means we can leapfrog over prayer and maybe be tempted into thinking that the ways that we really help and really advance the kingdom is by doing more. And we can forget that prayer is a huge part of that work, God. It is, the, it is the ground. And so teach us to pray. Mature us individually as couples, as families, as friend networks, small groups, as a church. Teach us your ways. Teach us to pray. And God, every day there seems to be new stories of people who are experiencing trauma, recovering from trauma, who have um, lost everything in wildfires, who are under persecution, who are um, moving through valleys that many of us can't wrap our heads and hearts around. So God, we come to you as the one who restores and ask for your healing power, your restorative power, your power to rehabilitate that which is impaired and broken and bring it back to full functioning. We pray for those who, through whatever circumstances, live under the burden and the oppression of tormented minds and broken bodies and ask that your grace and power would be made real to them and that you would bring healing to them. We now bring specific people in our lives with those needs before you. God, we ask you to build your church, not simply through numbers, although we'd love to see that, God, but the numbers mean nothing if they aren't a reflection of lives that are being transformed by you, lives that are being refined by your word as wills are genuinely surrendered to you, lives that are being purified by your word and learning to walk with you, not just believe things about you, but to actually walk faithfully before you and to be unified in their commitment to loving you, loving others, moving forward with the mission of the church. God, would you refine and purify and unify your church, even this one, God, today? And God, would you open the eyes of the spiritually blind? And of course, maybe our minds go right away to those 
friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers who do not know you, who are kind of spiritually blind in the, in the largest sense of the word, they don't recognize your power and your grace, would you reveal yourself to them, God? But we would also ask that you would open our eyes to our own spiritual blind spots. Would you cause whatever fog or confusion is in our minds and hearts and in theirs to be lifted so that people can see you and respond accordingly? We ask all these things in the mighty and strong name of Jesus, and we trust God that you will answer these prayers in your very best way. May your will be done, may your kingdom come here on earth, here in this church, here in this community, as it is in heaven. And all of God's people said, amen. Okay, we are moving back into the final chapters of the book of Revelation. I'm gonna finish this this summer. Uh, I sent out an email on our Facebook group, or sorry, I sent out a, a prompt on our Facebook group that in advance of today, be a good idea to either read or listen to the first 16 chapters of Revelation. If you haven't done that, do that at some point in the next 24 hours as we move into chapter 17 next week. Don't worry about trying to figure it all out. Just re-familiarize yourself with sort of the momentum and the flow of the text so that when we re-engage going into chapter 17 and 18 and 19, which get really, are incredibly dense and loaded, we kind of have our bearings a little bit. So that's chapters 1 to 16. I really like to just listen to it while I'm out for a walk. I put on the audio Bible. Um, but if reading's your, your jam for large swaths of scripture, go for it. Um, today what I wanted to share was a bit of a, an on-ramp back into Revelation by sharing kind of surprising or unexpected consequences that I've experienced in my own life from studying Revelation and re-studying it. Because I think I mentioned this at the start of the series, the book of Revelation was the first book that I studied when I became a Christian. And I use the word study because I was 14 years old when I became a Christian. And I just found a book by Grant R. Jeffrey called Revelation. And I knew enough about Revelation with that was kind of like the Lord of the Rings cool book in the Bible. Dragons and f flaming swords and Jesus being awesome and kicking butt. So I was like, that's cool, end time stuff. Um, but I was really only exposed to one kind of way of reading and understanding Revelation, although very thankful for that inroad. Um, and now after a billion years, I've gone through Revelation again. And there have just been things about the book that have really, really been a helpful, um, kind of a delightful surprise and has have caused me to uh, just really reflect on how far God is taking me in terms of understanding this really, really strange book. So I'm just gonna share these five things and if some of these resonate with you, I'd love to talk to you about them over coffee sometime because Revelation is one of those books that really um, lands for people in certain ways. And it's such an important book, but it's um, been such a humbling process to study it again. Okay, the first thing that I would say is, I don't know if it's a surprise, but it's been really different to experience the book of Revelation um, through a redemptive lens as opposed to an escapist lens. And what I mean by that is that the book is very different if you start on the premise that what we're seeing is Jesus 
getting back what is rightfully his and reclaiming what is rightfully his, which is all of creation, as opposed to a, um, an escapist lens that would say, here are some instructions of how, and here's kind of a timeline and information that will help Christians understand how they are going to get out of the world and reality as we know it, because it's gonna kind of continually move towards this burning dumpster fire, um, and then we're gonna be rescued from it. That is a presupposition that if you enter into Revelation, this idea that it's about escaping and how God is going to rescue his people from creation, that's very, very common. That was certainly the Grant R. Jeffrey mode futurist um, interpretation that I was exposed to first in Revelation. But man, it's a different book. And I challenge you, even, just, even if you don't fully buy that argument, if you're a strong futurist, to say, I'm gonna listen or read these first 16 chapters of Revelation as... A, as an indication that Jesus is not giving up on his world, but actually seeking to reclaim it. In Revelation 21:5, at the end, at the culmination of this vision, God says, look, I am making everything new. There's a renewal here, there's a restoration, there's a redemption in mind here. And when you understand that and work backwards, it's a, there's, there's just text that all of a sudden uh, jump out at you that maybe didn't before. I, I just find it really, really fascinating. And for me, it drives me to whole person discipleship. And what I mean by that is, if what Jesus wants to do is to make everything new and to restore and to reclaim that which has been lost to the power and penalty of sin, that means he want, that's what he's doing in my life right now. And what that means is my faith is way, way bigger than just Accepting Jesus, believing a certain amount of things so that I can be sure that when I die or if the rapture happens or if the end times, you know, is this generation that I'll be eternally secure. It's actually that he has saved me for a purpose here and now and that purpose is to move into life and lovingly, winsomely, thoughtfully bringing my whole person to bear on what does it mean to honor Jesus in his quest to make all things new? What does it look like for me to go into every dimension of my life and want to cooperate with God in the renewal of all things. And so for me, it's helped me to cultivate a, and even, I think I was already committed to it, but it's really helped to undergird my commitment to a whole life discipleship. Instead of um, what I think unintentionally got planted in my early teenage years, which was a worldview that was characterized by fear and retreat and a fatalism, the world's just gonna get worse and worse and worse, and we just have to hold on until Jesus comes back and then it'll be fine. Number two, Revelation is a summons to faithfulness more than it's a prophecy timeline kind of decoder. And I'm not saying you can't use uh, decoding methods to understand prophecies. I think there are prophecies that are very clearly accessible in the book of Revelation. But I think that when we jump to trying to figure it out, put all the puzzle pieces together, we can miss a theme that, again, as I listened to it the other day, just comes through again and again and again, which is this is a revelation first given to early Christians who were experiencing and would experience brutal persecution, like not unpopularity or some teasing. I'm talking life separated from life, limb, future, hope. And again and again, through the letters, through the visions, to me, the under, 
the thread that holds it together in so many ways is Jesus saying, I see what's happening. It's all under my sovereign rule and reign. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. In Revelation 6, 9, we see this vision of, uh, in the opening of the fifth seal, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And that's a theme in Revelation. Kind of the hanging question for the church and for Christians is, when the heat gets turned up, and if your faith were to actually cost you something, even your life, would you actually still maintain it? Would you hold on to it? Or is your faith kind of a faith of convenience, that as long as it's working for me, and it's, you know, there's, there's more benefits than costs, then it's like, yeah, awesome. But what if that, that equation got radically switched in our context in 10 or 20 years where the cost for following Jesus was very, very high. I think one of the books that we'd wanna go into again and again is Revelation. Not because we'd be able to figure out necessarily timeline stuff, but because the whole book is saturated with the summons to stay faithful. There's repeated calls to endure, repeated visions that are given in order to put courage into the hearts of Christians, literally encourage them, and to stay faithful. And again, when I read Revelation through that lens, that it's much, I think it's more about staying faithful to Jesus, even when the world around you is falling apart, um, it takes on new meaning. And it takes on new meaning for you personally or in your marriage, in your life. Because you can take it out of an end times, well, what, what, you know, that world falling apart might just be your world falling apart. Will you still fa- stay faithful to Jesus? Will you maintain your devotion to Jesus when your world falls apart? When you're going through difficulties? When your uh, body is broken? When your mind is under assault? When uh, your finances are jeopardized? Where your future, from a worldly point of view, it seems completely untethered from any kind of discernible hope where you can say, well, I I can kind of imagine this. Are you still going to be faithful? Number three, uh, and this has been surprising to me after all these years, is to read, generally speaking, informed, evangelical, uh, solid scholarship on Revelation and to realize there's actually no consensus view on how to interpret the book in terms of the particularities. And I've read enough now that, and I'm not the smartest person in the world, but uh, I've read enough to see the pattern where I read something and I'm like, oh, I read a futurist perspective and I'm like, totally, I totally see that. And then I'll read the uh, idealist perspective that kind of counters that a bit and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll, I do that with all the different texts. It is a very strange book. And that's, that's troubled me at times, to be honest, because there's a part of me that's like, God, this is obviously a really important book. Why wouldn't you make it more, like, obvious? And I don't really have an answer for that. <laughs> but that's just been an honest thing where I'm like, God, it seems like if you're gonna write a book to help us understand your, where, you're t- where all of this is going, could you have made it, could you have connected some of the dots a little bit clearer? And yet at the same time, I've grown in my appreciation that because of the symbolism, because of the richness of the text, 
um, there's a lot of layers to revelation. And not being able to just obviously read it and say, oh yeah, for sure, like, yeah, A, B, C, D, here it is. It forces me to keep going into the text and to allow the symbols and the patterns and the themes to work on my heart and to really um, challenge me in ways that they wouldn't need to if it was just self-evident. I love in Revelation 1.3, this is one of my great kind of, phew, I'm glad it says this in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So there's a blessedness promise to those who read the words. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. Notice what, is, what it does not say. Blessed are those who read it and hear it and totally figure it out. Just take it to heart. And that's what I've been trying to do through this whole series. Say, God, there is stuff that I would not, you know, stake my eternal salvation on. I know exactly what this trumpet uh, seal is, judgment is, or this bull seal, or what this symbolism is. I can kind of get in the ballpark, and then I'm like, I don't know. But I want to take the overall message to heart that Jesus reigns, evil is real, I am called to faithfully live and serve him, and uh, I live in a world where my faith is going to be tested by powers and principalities. And so realizing that Revelation has no consensus view actually has humbled me. And I think that's been good because, you know, honestly, speaking as both a Christian and a pastor, I've been pretty discouraged over the course of this year as I've observed on social media and through different platforms. Many people, well, I, let, me, let me start it this way. Studying Revelation has made me acutely aware of the importance of walking humbly before God, but also walking humbly before men, like people. Both of those are important. And what I mean by walking humbly before men is recognizing, especially when it comes to texts that are really challenging and complex and loaded, I don't have to have everything figured out. It's okay to say I don't know. And I should be slow to speak and quick to listen from other Christian brothers and sisters who have studied this stuff longer than I have. And that's been important to me because over the last year and a half, I've been gutted at times by the amount of Christians who I have observed who in the name of walking humbly before God have walked arrogantly and ungraciously before other people who shoot their mouth off about what they know about revelation or end times or prophecies or vaccines or medications and health stuff. And I understand we all have our opinions and I understand that what you get on social media are the loudest, proudest voices often. But man, it's been discouraging to see so many Christians who think that what it means to walk humbly before God is to walk antagonistically towards their neighbor. And it's just been, I, I've just been uh, gutted by it. I'm like, oh man. And then yesterday I found this great quote by Andrew Murray that puts into, uh, just perfectly encapsulates the tension that I've been feeling. Where he writes, it's really easy to think that we are walking humbly before God. But it's actually humility towards other people that is the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is actually real. You can't walk in kind of this pious, it's just about allegiance to Jesus, I love Jesus, whatever uh, um, sincere religious language you wanna use, and then walk with a brazen, prideful, ungracious posture towards 
other Christians, and other people. So Revelation has humbled me because it's shown me that I have a lot to learn and there's going to be a lot of things this side of heaven I don't know. Number four, Revelation presents a really sophisticated understanding of God's sovereignty and the reality of evil. Let me talk about the reality of evil first. In Revelation 1.9, there's this really quick summation that John gives to the churches of what is to be found in Jesus, meaning life as a Christian, in Christ. Those are all ways of describing your life now that you are in Christ, living for Jesus. He says, um, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. The translation I was looking at this week said, the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus. We know there is kingdom power and blessing and awesomeness in Jesus. Yeah, that's, why, that's part of why we are drawn to become Christians. We're thankful that there's endurance. Awesome, life gets hard, Jesus is our rock and he's going to sustain and strengthen us forward. But the whole book of Revelation is an apocalypse. It's a revealing of the truth that there's affliction in Jesus too. Like life isn't going to be easy. It's not just going to be a continual story where a bad thing was about to happen and then God rescued me. Another bad thing was about to happen, God rescued me. Something challenging was about to happen. God rescued me. Yes, there is kingdom power and glory and joy and love. Yes, there is endurance and strengthening, but there's also affliction. And part of what you see in Revelation is this challenging truth that spiritual victory as defined by God doesn't mean escaping from suffering, escaping from evil but actually overcoming those things through faithfulness to Jesus, even to the point of death. That's what spiritual victory looks like. Listen to Revelation 2.10 again. Jesus is bracing a church. He says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. And after that, I'm gonna spring you free and everything's gonna be amazing. That's not how that ends. He says, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Oof. Jesus is like, I see what's happening. This is gonna happen. Be ready for it. I'm asking you to be faithful right to the end. And that's going to mean death. But I have a reward for you. Revelation teaches us and has taught me that Jesus expects me to be faithful even when my faith endangers me. Never mind when it just makes my life inconvenient. When I was a, one of the good messages I got as a Christian teenager was a um, consistent reinforcement about my commitment to Jesus ought to be such that I'm willing to die for him if need be. And I've been reminded of that as I've steeped in Revelation, that Jesus seems very comfortable with some of his followers being imprisoned and maybe dying because he has a larger purpose for how he's gonna use their death. 
but he sees it as spiritual victory to do that. Maybe that's hard for us to hear where we're so concerned with creating comfort and ease and safety, but again, really important, an important theme to pick up as we move through Revelation. So you get this dynamism where evil is real and suffering is real and we should expect it as Christians, but also that God is sovereign, that through the whole book, even though it's through the symbolism, the dragon, the beast, and all these things, the symbolism of evil, evil kind of gets turned up to 11 out of 10. Jesus, God's purposes, the church, they're actually never presented as existentially imperiled. Like, oh no, is the dragon going to win? There's just strong and steady, confident march towards God's purposes at the end of history. And Jesus, in and through his church, is going to overcome in Revelation 1, 5, um, John says, this revelation is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's present tense, not someone who's gonna rule when he comes back. That's when it's gonna start. It started now. Jesus is ruling and reigning now. And that's hard for us because we're like, well, how can God be, Jesus can be in charge and yet we see so much suffering happening. And, and there's a mystery there in terms of the now and not yet kingdom. God's kingdom has been inaugurated. It's been started, but it hasn't been brought to fulfillment yet. So there's gonna be this kind of um, wheat and, and weeds growing together. But we're presented with this vision where Jesus is leading history somewhere. And he, the, the promise that he gives to Peter on Peter's confession is the one that we need to hear where he says, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell aren't gonna prevail against it. I'm not under threat here. That doesn't mean that some of my followers won't feel the friction of when my kingdom collides with the kingdom of darkness. That's just the, the, the end game isn't in doubt. No one needs to live in any, any kind of anxiety that they're on the wrong side. Jesus has secured the victory. He rules and reigns. And that has increased my courage and confidence. Especially, um, well, I'll bypass that. Lastly, Revelation has helped me to reclaim and reappropriate for my own life the reality that all of reality, all of life is about Jesus. It's all centered on him. Revelation is an apocalypse, which means a revealing it's a tearing back of what seems to be the case based on our perception of what is really at play and who is really in charge and where all of this is really headed. In a world that, that people look around and they say, I don't really see any pattern or the only patterns that I see, the only thing I concede to is that reality is basically just a war between uh, it's a mix of power and oppression and people are at play and it's all just individual wills battling against each other. It's like, no, there's a greater purpose. There's a redemptive purpose and it only makes sense and you only begin to see it when you place Jesus at the center. Revelation presents the triumph of Jesus over his foes. And I think this is important. It has been important for me to hear. It might be important for you to hear. That means when you read Revelation, one of the important theological truths that you've got to embrace, that Revelation forces you to embrace, is that life isn't about you. Like, life is about Jesus. And that means life isn't about your agenda, however 
high-minded and thoughtful and sincere it might be, life is about turning all of who I am and learning how do I leverage this to bless and honor and lift the name of Jesus high and center on him. Life isn't about me. Revelation is not a book that says, this is about God fulfilling your story, your dreams, your agenda. This is you being invited to participate in God's kingdom mission because that's where all of reality is moving towards. Um, do you want to go to the next slide, Greg? I, that, this is the one I accidentally took out of my notes. Um, oh, no, never mind. I'm totally wrong on that. Just keep going. Um, in Romans 11.36, there's this great summary statement where it talks about Jesus, and it says, for from him and through him and for him are all things, so to him be the glory forever and ever. And that's kind of an encapsulation of the book of Revelation, Romans eleven thirty six. All things are from Jesus. All things are through him. All things are for him. And where, where that has impacted me is when I was 14, I was devouring Revelation because I wanted to figure out all the prophecy puzzle pieces and how it all fit together and how I could understand what was happening over in Gorbachev's Europe and um, credit card stuff and Marks of the Beast. And now I realized, um, for me, that was a, for me, that was a distraction from, I think, what is the larger summons of Revelation, which is, if everything is from Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus, how am I doing in aligning my own life to that truth? Like, am I living as if Jesus is Lord of all things in heaven and on earth? And not in like a religious kind of theologically abstract way, but like when I wake up tomorrow morning, am I going to enter into my day with that realization? And will that inform and shape how I go through my day, right? Is my life being conformed to Jesus's likeness and beauty and truth and grace and character? We have a lot of Christians who are, can tell you, can quote all kinds of amazing verses of prophecy fulfillment and do all kinds of amazing theological jujitsu with the book of Daniel and different things in Revelation. And they are um, bitter, prideful. Um, the obsession with figuring things out has distracted them from the deeper work of saying, whoa, if this is who Jesus is, and this is what reality is right now, and this is where it's going, I better not settle for a faith that's just kind of like, yeah, I believe some stuff about God, and that's cool. I show up to church once in a while, like, that's neat. I have beliefs. It's like, no, this is a summons to whole person commitment. Is knowing and loving Jesus the actual pursuit around which we're building everything else in our lives? Do I enter each day with a vision to receive an apocalypse, even if it's a little apocalypse as I open God's word and pray and say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Because I don't want to go through this day numb to your power and presence, disconnected. As I move through all of my responsibilities, how do I honor you? 
Has that vision from Revelation gripped our hearts or have we allowed lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those are the things, our own agendas, to be the thing around which we build our lives. And one of those things is God, that we want God's help to make this happen. But I think Revelation just blows the doors off of that kind of, even if it's um, pietistic and sincere, it's like God isn't there to fulfill your agenda. Sometimes he will, and it would be an amazing blessing, but that's, that's not the purpose. The purpose is for you to say, how can I increasingly honor and live for Jesus in a way that glorifies him? Revelation is a really wild and shocking, and it's a disruptive book. It's actually designed, I think, to bypass the intellect and through the symbols and the themes to strike at the heart and at the imagination in a way that sometimes we can't even articulate. And it's all around this core truth that Jesus is king right now. Jesus is Lord right now. And he's coming to redeem and take back what is rightfully his. And I want you to hear that because one of the messages from Revelation that I think comes through loud and clear and will continue to come through loud and clear in these later chapters is that if you are building your life around anything other than Jesus and his kingdom, doesn't matter how lofty and noble and virtuous you think that vision is, all of the joy and peace and fulfillment and pleasure that you are seeking to consume, it will be fleeting and you play, the, you play the script out long enough and it will turn to ashes in your mouth. It'll just turn to ashes in your mouth. Only as you turn to Christ, only as you seek him, only as you prioritize him in all things, only as you, yes, plan and purpose and have dreams and goals, but always bookend them with, not my will, but your will be done in my life. That's when life finds its true purpose and it's real and sustaining pleasure, and it's real and eternal power. For from him and through him and for him are all things, and so to Jesus be the glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, amen. I'm gonna invite Kelly up for a final song.